Hello, salam, and welcome to the Ajam Podcast. Dear listeners, it's been a long time since our last episode. Eight months, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, the world has turned upside down since then. I hope you and your families have managed to stay healthy and safe during these troubling times. I apologize for not keeping up with the podcast over the last year. In addition to the global pandemic and the massive political movements across the states and elsewhere, there have been many changes for myself and for my colleagues at Ajam. To start with myself, I've been working on finishing my dissertation, and in January, I moved to North Carolina to start a new job. I've been preoccupied with life changes with my dissertation and writing and, and work, so spending hours organizing and recording and editing episodes was more than I could handle. Fortunately, I'm happy to announce that the Ajam podcast has a new breath of life. My good friend and fellow Ajam co-editor, Ali Karjuravari, the assistant professor of religious studies at Bucknell University, has come on board as co-producer of the podcast. You'll be hearing his lovely voice for the next few weeks. With Ali's help, we are lucky to add a sound engineer to our ranks. Nick Gunty, a musician and record producer, will be taking over editing duties. So if you hear a sudden uptick in the audio quality in our episodes, now you know why. I'm ecstatic he's joined us. Additionally, Lindsay Stevenson has been hard at work recording interviews for the Indian Ocean series. So if you're interested in Mombasa and Jakarta and everything in between, then stay tuned. And finally, crowd favorite Kamyar Jarazadeh will be focusing on more music-oriented podcasts, which will be a fun addition to our program. Over the next few months, you'll be hearing interviews that were recorded over the course of 2019 and early 2020. Thanks to our new team, we'll be able to record new interviews soon, so expect to hear new conversations as soon as we finish our backlog. To start us off, here's my interview with Professor Golbag Rekop Talai on the history of Iranian cinema. I hope you enjoy it. Goldberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rustin, for having me here. It's a pleasure. We're here to talk about her new book. It's called Iranian Cosmopolitanism, A Cinematic History. It is published by Cambridge University Press. You are talking a lot about cinematic modernity, what the role of cinema is to the modernizing processes that are happening in Iran in the 20th century. But also you're talking about cosmopolitanism. And I'm just wondering, what do you mean by these terms, cinematic modernity? What do you mean by this idea of social cosmopolitanism? And how does Iranian cinema fit into these larger processes? Well, by cinematic modernity, I basically refer to this experience of modernity through cinema. Cinema is not only an offspring of modernity in that, you know, it was a technology that emerged in the late 19th century but also in that it provided for experiences that can be considered as modern in, in the way, for example, that it collapsed notions of time and space and how that contributed to the experience of modernity in the early 20th century. By cosmopolitanism, there are two aspects of cosmopolitanism that I look at, uh, one I call social cosmopolitanism and one I call cinematic cosmopolitanism. So at the turn of the 
20th century, the period that I started my research, Iran was an empire, of course, and there were people from various places and empires living in Iran, and a lot of Iranians were, of course, going to regions outside Iran. So there was a lot of influx and outflux of people and populations and ideas at the time. But things start to change in the early 20th century. And that's in particular because a lot of the neighboring communities, especially Armenians, Russians, Azerbaijani, Georgian communities, they actually flee the regions where there were a lot of wars or persecution, and they actually choose Iran as a safe haven, uh, as a home. And also during this time, a lot of Iranians are going to the Caucasus, to Russia, as, as laborers, but also as merchants. So this inflow and outflow of populations, basically, in a way, is increased in the early 20th century. At the turn of the 20th century, these communities who actually also come to Tehran and choose Tehran as their home start creating sites of sociability that was not only for um, entertainment, but also for education, sites where they, they could actually engage in dialogue, for example. So cinema spaces become also one of these sites that are established by what I call these cosmopolitan figures in Iran. So you have, for example, Russian, uh, Armenian, Georgian, diasporic groups and diasporic figures who bring cinematograph devices, these devices that not only project films, but also can record films. They bring them to Tehran and they start showing films in venues that were not officially cinema spaces or movie theaters. For example, in the back of their shops, most of them were merchants, for example, or coffee shops and, and whatnot. So this is where cosmopolitanism and cinematic modernity are intertwined because you have these spaces where people from diverse backgrounds are intermingling in the space of film screening venues. And they are all of a sudden exposed to a new world through these international films that our cinematograph operators are bringing to, to Tehran. They're being exposed to worlds that previously they were not exposed to. So that's how social cosmopolitanism in the early 20th century and cinematic cosmopolitanism and especially cinematic modernity are intertwined. So basically, I argue that modernity at the early 20th century was a cosmopolitan experience or was cosmopolitan modernity in a way. And this is something that you hint at in your first chapter Oh, more than hint at, you give a detailed account of it. And, you know, we're familiar, at least of people who have studied cinematic history in Iran. The first cinematic equipment is coming from an Armenian filmmaker, for example. We, so we have this notion that cinema in Iran is tied to this global process of technological innovation and also movement of peoples and various sorts of global struggles and global political upheavals that are happening in the world. But one of the things in your first chapter is you discuss that you're taking a non-elite approach to cinematic history. So you're not just looking at rich merchants who are bringing these photographic and cinematographic equipment, but you're also looking at the formation of public space. You're looking at the creation of an audience. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about Tehran and Tabriz and what did the reception look like? Who were the first cinema watchers? Who were these people who were going to the back of the shop and watching these films? So there is this preconception uh, at this point, a preconception about cinema that in the early 20th century, it was a courtly leisure or an entertainment form for the court only. 
But we know that as early as 1903, for example, Sahaf Bashi was one of these Iranian merchants who was operating the cinematograph device in his antique shop. So by actually bringing the cinematograph device and projecting films in their shops in Tehran, and also in Tabriz, of course, it's happening at the same time in Tabriz, but my book focuses more on Tehran. They are actually exposing the public also to cinema, and especially in the way that cinema starts to contribute to the cartography of the city as well, where centers of entertainment are formed, for example, in certain streets in what is now southern Tehran. So these cosmopolitan cinematograph operators show films in their antique shops, in their cafes, where these spaces are populated by ordinary people. And also starting in the early 19-teens, in fact, cinema becomes so popular among the urban public that cinemas start selling discounted tickets for students. So students also start seeing a lot of films and also kind of engaging in the conversations that are taking place in cinema spaces. And then at the same time, a lot of the cosmopolitan figures who were operating the cinematograph in their spaces, they were also starting to, I don't like to use the term Iranianize the practice, but they start translating these international films for the audiences because a lot of them are obviously at the same silent films and they have intertitles that are not in Persian. So a lot of audience members do not know the languages, which were a lot of times Russian, French, English. So they start actually translating these intertitles for people and a lot of times inserting their own opinions or their thoughts about certain characters in the film experience. And in a way, they create a cinematic culture during the early 20th century that a lot of film historians or cinema historians actually do not look at. Now, I also wanted to go back to your question about how this is more public rather than elitist. I think I kind of alluded to it, but just the fact that the public is also exposed to these new spaces in the city of Tehran, new posters about films, for example, I think that also brings people who maybe did not necessarily have favorable view towards cinema or people who did not have the means to actually watch films. They also were involved in this experience of cinematic modernity because cinema was obviously influencing and contributing to the cartography of the city as well. If I were a student in Tehran in the 19-teens, what sort of film would I be watching? They usually had a combination of films. Some were comedy and then drama. A lot of times in their programs, they actually changed the names of films. So for the earlier periods, especially 1900s, it's not always clear what films they're showing. But some of the films that they were showing, for example, were Masist, which was very popular at the time. There were a lot of Russian comedies, Azerbaijani comedies. They were bringing films from France. Also, some American films were being shown. But during World War I, in fact, war films became really, really popular. And when we think about it, it's interesting because a lot of times these war films took people who were watching these films, especially the cosmopolitans or those hybrid figures who are in the space of cinema back to their homelands because they were these Russians, perhaps Russian-Iranians, Armenian-Iranians who were watching war films. And so for them, the, the experience in the cinema was an experience that took them back to their homelands. 
So some of the films that they showed in cinemas, I think I already mentioned Massist, and another one was, for example, uh, Count of Monte Cristo. These were very popular. As I mentioned, there are always problems looking for film titles because a lot of times they change the names of films in the announcements. And I get most of the titles from announcements in newspapers. At the end of a lot of newspaper issues, there were sections that were, in fact, just dedicated to film screenings. So the titles would sometimes appear there. And a lot of times they would just, for example, say a war film about World War I or a war film about Russo-Japanese war. Sometimes they change names. For example, some cinemas would show Viva Russia and some cinemas would actually show Viva Japan, depending on their own political views on the Russo-Japanese war. Oh, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, so, so names changed a lot in actually a lot of these film announcements and film programs. You're talking a lot about international films coming abroad. And you did mention this idea of Iranifying these films, especially with their title cards. And I was wondering, once sound comes to the picture, how does this affect the domestic production of cinema in Iran? When does the first Persian language film come to the fore? And if that's related to any sort of political or economic changes that are happening in Iran at the early 20th century? That's a great question. Let me just mention that, in fact, in the first two decades of the 20th century, we do have film production in Iran by Iranian residents, cosmopolitan residents, or hybrid figures. But they were mostly newsreels, what I call newsreels, but not that they were necessarily used as newsreels in cinemas all the time. But basically these documentary films or documentary-like films that showed different parts of Tehran, for example, or different parts of Iran, military training and whatnot. There was some film production during the first two decades of the 20th century, but it's only in the late 1920s and in the early 1930s that you have the production of first Persian language films. And although I call it Persian language films, we should keep in mind that the first films were in fact silent and it was only the intertitles that were in Persian. People such as Ibrahim Moradi, for example, in northern parts of Iran, he started making films in the late 1920s. But then we have people such as Ovanes Ohanians in Tehran, who had migrated from Moscow to Tehran, who in fact established a film training center in the capital and uh, where he trained actors based on acting training that he had himself received in Moscow and Moscow schools. So I think the production of the first Persian language films in the late 1920s, early 1930s has to do with the professionalization of these people in the field rather than the government. I mean, it's, uh, the government did not necessarily have much control over film production, at least until 1920s, late 1920s. So... Ovanes Ohanians, in fact, also made the first Persian language films. But what is interesting about his films is that the intertitles of the films were usually in three languages of Russian, French, and Persian, which also kind of speaks to the cosmopolitan audience that he had and he had seen in cinemas, especially in the capital in Tehran. But then in 1934, you have the first Persian language talkie film, Dokhtar Lore, the Lore Girl, that was in fact produced in India by Ardeshir Irani and the script was in fact written by an Iranian, Abdul Hussein Sepanta. A lot of the older literature on Iranian cinema 
A lot of times attribute the emergence of the Persian language films of the 1930s to Abdul Hussein Sepanta, who was the script writer or the, the playwright for a lot of the films that were produced in 1930s. And in a way, downgrading the role of Ardashiriwani, who was in fact the father of talkies in India, but also the director of Lukhtar Elur in 1934. And in fact, Abdul Hussein Sepanta's name was not even mentioned in a lot of the film announcements in newspapers at the time. So it's only in retrospect that a lot of times Abdul Hussein Sepanto becomes important in this cinematic endeavor in 1930s. So you're talking about the 1930s. One of the elephants in the room here is the establishment of the Pahlavi dynasty in the 1920s. So how does this new sort of modernizing, centralizing state utilize the cinema industry and movies as a tool for its economic and political and social engineering. So in fact, before I talk about the Pahlavi dynasty and its utilization of cinema, I would like to maybe mention that from 1900s to 1920s, a lot of these cosmopolitan figures already used cinema, not only for entertainment, but also to educate the masses. So in the way that they tried to promote their cinema programs, film programs every night, they tried to draw on the conversations that were quite popular at the time, very nationalist conversations about Iranian sovereignty, for example, about nationalism, Iranian nationalism. And a lot of times they would mention that people had to watch films, especially students, in the service of the nation. So in a way, cosmopolitanism fed into notions of Iranian nationalism and also sovereignty. So the cinema that emerges in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, I actually call it a cosmonational cinema just because I think it's very important to keep in mind that most of the people who were involved in the cinema industry were actually people who had migrated from other places. Ovanes Ohanians, for example, he had migrated from Russia. Ibrahim Muradi had gained his training in filmmaking. He actually gained his education from Russia. The Lore Girl, for example, was made by Ardashir Irani and the other Persian language films that are made after that are actually produced in India. So other than Obanes Ohanians and Ibrahim Moradi's films, which were filmed in Iran, these other films that were produced during this time were all outside Iran. So that's why I actually call these films cosmonational films. A lot of people now call them nationalist because after the Lore Girl, the government commissions Sepanto to, to make films that promote Iranianness and the glory of ancient Iran, for example. So a couple of historical films were made during this time. So a lot of people call this a nationalist cinema. But then by calling it that, I think we, we overlook the participation of these non-Iranians or, or those who have gained their education or their worldview outside Iran in this cinema. So this sort of state encroachment into the film industry doesn't last too long. In your book, you mentioned that after 1930s and especially in 1941, with the Allied invasion of Iran during World War II, domestic film production stops. What happens in the post-war period? What is kind of the major trends in, in filmmaking? Clearly, you have major demographic shifts. You have huge urbanization. Quality of life is increasing. You have more people in the cities. What is happening to cinema that is reflecting these sorts of changes post-World War II? 
From the late 1930s to 1940s, there were no fiction film productions. Nevertheless, there were a lot of documentary filmmaking going on during this period. For example, Hamid Nafisi has done a lot of research on these uh, documentary films during this period. But in the late 1940s, you have the emergence of a popular cinema or a commercial cinema. And this, this popular cinema is in a way a continuation of the cosmonational cinema of the 1930s. A lot of the themes in this cinema are similar to some of the themes that were tackled in the cosmonational cinema of 1930s. Also, a lot of the people who were involved in filmmaking in this popular cinema also were cosmopolitans of diverse ethnic, religious, linguistic groups. So the aspirations of film critics in 1930s for cinematic sovereignty, what I call cinematic sovereignty, because they were constantly talking about how we need to have a sovereign cinema, an Iranian cinema or a national cinema, it's actualized in the 1940s and consolidated in the 1950s in the form of this popular cinema, which is then derogatively termed as film farsi, what is interesting is that in the cosmonational films, the Persian language played a, an important indicator of the Iranianness of the films. So in these films in 1930s, the intertitles were in Persian, but later on in the talkies, Persian language was used. But then Fin Farsi, as we can see, the, the title, which means Persian films, Fin Farsi was a derogative term that was used for these films to draw attention to the single-sidedness of the films, meaning that the only thing that made these films Iranian was the Persian language. So it's interesting how this shift happens from 1930s to 1950s in cinema. And this is occurring at the commercialization of cinema as well, right? So Commercialization of, uh, of cinema, but also because this commercial cinema is in dialogue with other commercial cinemas of the time, especially Hollywood. In 1950s, a lot of Egyptian films are being shown in Iran, and there are Iranian remakes of these Egyptian films. Also, Indian films are being shown in Iranian theaters. So critics start criticizing these popular films films as being imitations of these other popular films. So basically the cosmopolitanism of the films, the fact that they were drawing on these other commercial cinemas or commercial films was seen as a means to westernization, which is why a lot of film critics were in fact against Fin Farsi during this time or the popular cinema in general. For our listeners, you will hear more about Film Farsi in a later episode that we'll have with actually now Dr. Laura Fish. She just defended her dissertation at the University of Texas, Austin. Stay tuned for that episode. So for my next question, I want to ask a little bit about what Film Farsi has been put in opposition to, especially in contemporary cinematic history, which is the new wave or the new wave of Iranian cinema, which I guess has a start in the 1960s and 1970s, but has been popular since then and has formulated a lineage that is now being shown in the international film circuit. So one of the questions I have for you is, how strong is this dichotomy between Phil Farsi and the new wave cinema? You call this cinema alternative cinema as opposed to new wave. Why you call it this? And also, you say that alternative cinema in this period is inflected with socialist realist tendencies. And I agree with this. I think it's very clear if you watch films like Kyorostami and, and others. But can you parse this out a little bit? Sure. In the late 1950s, 
because there were many criticisms against film Farsi or popular cinema, the film critics or the trendsetters of the time, in fact, paved the way for a group of young filmmakers to make films that were different from popular cinema. So the common conception is that the cinema that emerges during this time, um, known as New Wave, was very in stark contrast to Fin Farsi in content, in filmmaking, in various aspects. But in fact, a lot of them draw on a lot of the motives in Fin Farsi, which is part of the argument I make in the book that Fin Farsi, in fact, was about people's negotiation with, with modernity. It reflected the anxieties of the time. So this new cinematic movement that emerges, what is usually known as the new wave, kind of draws on these tensions and anxieties and provides a different cinematic take or filmic take on these issues. So let me just tell you why I call it alternative and not new wave. I look at the literature at the time and a lot of times... The filmmakers themselves and the film critics, in fact, refer to this cinema as cinema motifavit. And that means alternative cinema or a cinema that was alternative to something, which meant alternative to film Farsi. So I think it works very well with the cinema that emerges during this time or the trend that emerges, but is in parallel a lot of times and is overlapping with film Farsi as well. Although the term new wave is also used sometimes, and the reason that new wave is used by a lot of filmmakers and some film critics is that this was in line with different new wave trends that existed during this time around the world. For example, you had the French new wave, and then in late 1960s, 70s, you have the third cinema, which was seen as an the new wave. So this cinema also drew on some of the stories, themes, topics, motifs, filmmaking techniques of French new wave, Italian new realism. It engaged with third cinema in 1970s. And basically it was in conversation with these other alternative filmmaking trends around the world. So in that sense, it is in a way similar to Film Farsi in that it's it's engaging with global cinema. But then at the same time, it was also different from Film Farsi. Some of them, not all of them. Uh, there were a lot of overlaps, but some of them were different from Film Farsi in that they were made for an intellectual audience. They were more lyrical and they were in fact based on Persian literature. So the audience was in a way different and therefore the films were made for an art house audience. Considering how the history of the Iranian revolution has influenced our perspectives of Iranian cinema and how cinema is created nowadays, what does your book offer us in terms of looking at it through this cosmopolitan lens? And secondly, you have to give us your top five historical Iranian films. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the second question is very difficult. Um, or top three. <laughs> that's even more difficult. The book, I think what it offers, not only through the lens of cosmopolitanism, but in general, I think it revisits a lot of preconceptions that we have about history of Iranian cinema. For example, the fact that we think that from the beginning there was antagonism between cinema and the religious establishment. So I show that, in fact, early cinema was quite popular in 1900s, 19-teens. 
But I do this through looking at cosmopolitanism in first social cosmopolitanism and how that impacts the film industry and the creation of cosmopolitan cinematic culture. And then I look at how this cosmopolitanism is transformed in different cinematic trends, for example, in Film 4C and also in the alternative cinema. I think by looking at cosmopolitanism and taking that as a vantage point, things are revealed that we would not usually see in the history of cinema. So, for example, one aspect that I think I came to realize by looking at cosmopolitanism was that history of cinema has always been determined by political history. But by looking at the temporality or history of cinema itself and looking at cosmopolitanism, you come to realize that there were continuities and discontinuities within this history that did not necessarily always overlap with the political history. And I think I was able to only see these continuities, discontinuities by focusing on cosmopolitanism and cinematic uh, temporality rather than political temporality. Oh, and my... um, Yeah, of course. Definitely waiting for this. (laughs) Okay. Um, That's a very difficult question. Maybe I'll go chronologically. Uh, Maybe that helps a little bit. Of course, I love Haji Aga, the cinema actor, Awanis Ohanians' film in 1934. That's one. Second film that I would choose. Maybe I can choose a film for C film. I love Juja Fokoli, (laughs) which I find really interesting. And an alternative film that... I think actually is both a film for C and alternative uh, is Kaysar, uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. So I think those three w- should suffice. Goldbag, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Rustin, for having me here. It was a pleasure to speak with you about the book. To our listeners, that was Goldbag Rekop Talai, and her book is Iranian Cosmopolitanism A Cinematic History, and it is by Cambridge University Press. As usual, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter and Facebook and we'll continue the conversation there. Thank you very much. Till next time.